0: pray, let me ask, do you wish your life were better? Uh, I suspect we do. Uh, And I've got good news for you, and that is that uh, God shares that desire for you. And uh, this book, the book of Hebrews, uh, is a a recipe uh, for how your life can be better and uh, it 's a recipe it 's a curious recipe. it only has one ingredient uh, and and the ingredient is jesus and so all the way through this book and this term this series we 're going to be learning many different ways in which it 's Jesus and knowing him better, knowing the gospel better uh, that our life is made better uh, so let 's pray that God would work uh, that. Uh, in us not only this morning but throughout the term. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you love us and you do uh, want our life to be better. Help us to listen carefully, to pay the most careful attention as we've just been urged to do to your spoken word this morning, the word you have spoken, that you've declared, that teaches us what a better life looks like and also where it can be found. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is full of words, isn't it? Uh, in fact, in the English language, which um, you'll be proud to know is the most verbose language in the world, uh, there are more English words than there are in any other language in the world. Russian comes second. Uh, in the English language, according to at least the Oxford English Dictionary, can you guess how many words are currently in use? Anyone? 25,000, not a bad guess, but woefully inadequate, Ella. (laughs) Not a couple of million. There's always one in the crowd who doesn't play properly, isn't there? No, 171,146 is the current count. No, 171,146 currently in use, uh, and that doesn't include the 47,000 or so that have become recently obsolete that we don't uh, tend to use anymore. Words are very useful, aren't they? They enable knowledge and, more importantly, they enable communication and, therefore, they enable relationship. Of course, they're not the only way to express relationship, uh, to communicate, and we've seen some examples already this morning of non-verbal communication. Uh, But they are the key ingredient in the formation of deep, rich and satisfying relationships. Have you ever thought about that, the importance of words? Uh, Ask anybody, ask Dean and Rachel, and perhaps some of you this morning have experienced this or are experiencing this, ask anyone who has experienced a language barrier and you will discover even better how important words are. Words are, in fact, a gift from God uh, that enable another good gift, Knowing each other, and today's passage is all about the importance of words for our relationship with God, and of one word in particular. That's right, one word in particular. Now, the author of Hebrews begins his uh, letter. Uh, We don't know who the author is, by the way. Uh, There's no no uh, name attributed uh, to to it, so I'll I'll just be calling uh, them the author. The author begins with a comparison. Uh, You might have noticed, as Charles read for us, in the past, so here's the comparison, in the past, verse 1, verse 2, but in these last days. So in the past God spoke, but in these last days he has spoken. And this comparison is the M.O. of the author. Throughout the letter, he does comparison after comparison in order to show that Jesus is better but before we jump into this first comparison uh, let's just take a few moments to dwell on the simple fact that's made in both statements and that is that God has spoken God has spoken in the language of theology this is known as the doctrine of revelation not Revelation with a capital R, the last book of the Bible, but God revealing himself through words, by speaking. It's a very important concept, a very important doctrine. In fact, it's one of my favourites. You could almost say it's a foundational doctrine for all other doctrines because it's only because God has spoken and revealed himself that we know anything, that there is any theology And so you understand how important it is that God has spoken, revealing everything that he wants us to know. And that the Bible, this is part of Revelation, we believe that the Bible is the written record of what he has said and done. And so because God has spoken, we can know what he is like. If he had not spoken, we would not know what God is like. We would have only the vaguest ideas. Because God has spoken, we can know what he wants. We can know his will. And that is so important if we're going to live well in his world. Because God has spoken, we can actually understand the world as it truly is, because we can see it from his perfect perspective. But most importantly, because God has spoken, we can know him personally. Remember, words are the foundation of relationship. And that is the primary reason that God has spoken, so that we can know him personally. The goal of Revelation. A few uh, reflections on the doctrine of Revelation. Firstly, The doctrine of Revelation should keep us humble. Christians should be humble people because the doctrine of Revelation teaches us that we didn't work God out. We couldn't work God out. We had to rely on God to make himself known, to reveal himself to us. What we know of God is only due to the grace of God in making himself known. So we should be humble in our faith, And in our theology, it's a gift from God. Also, because God has spoken, it should keep us listening to God. It's a noisy world, isn't it? So many voices competing for our attention, but no voice is better than the voice of God, is it? No word is more important than the word he has spoken. And God has spoken So let's keep listening. And a third reflection on the doctrine of Revelation is just how poorly it is understood out there in the world. This fact that God has spoken is ignored by unbelievers when they accuse us of telling them how to live, as if we're making it up. It's not just that they don't believe that God has spoken. It's that they don't know that we believe that God has spoken. Somehow or other, that gets lost along the way. And so because God has spoken, let's listen for this misunderstanding, especially in personal conversation with people, and let's correct it when we get the chance so that other people understand, oh, right, you're not a bigot. You're someone who believes that there is a big God who has spoken and you're listening to him. Give them a chance to listen as well. That's the doctrine of Revelation. What a wonderful gift to us. Now let's go back in and think about how God has spoken and we'll do it via this comparison that the author sets up for us. Let's read these first couple of verses to hear it clearly. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. There's one side of the comparison. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So there's a a bunch of different phrases that are set up uh, against one another. In the past, God spoke. In these last days, God has spoken. It's important to understand that the author isn't just saying back then and more recently. Uh, That word last there uh, means final. In these final days, in these last days, in these end times could be another way of using the phrase. And those times, these last days, though this was written almost 2,000 years ago, continue to today. These last days are also the days in which God has spoken by his Son. Uh, in the past, God spoke to whom? Well, to our ancestors, which is kind of obvious. <laughs> They're the people who were around at the time. But in these last days, God has spoken to us. It's a very important point that he's making this word of revelation, this final word of revelation in Jesus is a word spoken to us. And as I said, these days continue and so it is still presently that God has spoken these words this word to us. This is a new word, it was an old word for them and a new word for us. It doesn't mean that the old word becomes irrelevant, but it is it is seen only and understood only in light of the new word. And how did God speak in the past? Well, in the past God spoke in the prophets. Uh, the NIV says, through the prophets, and I was going to make a contrast between through the prophets and by his son. Uh, actually, I went to the Greek and unfortunately it's just in the prophets and in the son. <laughs> so I can't make that contrast. Uh, and yet I think it is significant uh, that there, there is a contrast here. The prophets were messengers. There were many of them and they were messengers of the word. But in the Greek, it actually doesn't say even in his son. It just says in son. In son. It's, a, it's an interesting way to say it, isn't it? It's almost like the son is a language. And I think what we're meant to gather here is that it's, it's it, Jesus is not a message. Jesus is the word. The word of God in the flesh. As uh the Gospel of John makes clear. And then finally, the last phrase in that first verse is that God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. At many times and in various ways, contrasted with, well, actually nothing. There is no contrast at this point. There's no once and for all or, or anything like that there. So, But we're going to leave that hanging for a minute and, and we'll come back to what might be going on there now in this comparison the author is introducing us to an interesting feature of god's revelation and that is the idea of progressive revelation god doesn't reveal himself all at once in one big download rather throughout history god revealed himself at various times and in at many times and in various ways and finally in his son not all at once this is progressive revelation but does this idea this idea of progressive revelation create a little bit of a problem or a little bit of a chink in God's armor in terms of how he's revealed himself how do we know right now that there's not more to come if it's God's way to reveal himself progressively how do we know there's more to come? Should we expect or look for further words from God? If the Old Testament was stage one of God's revelation and the New Testament is stage two, well, couldn't there be a stage three? Is it a bit like one of those you know, recent movie franchises? I don't know if you're into any of them, the, the Marvel or Star Wars or whatever, where there's sequels and prequels and spin-offs galore and, and no end uh, because each one of them makes money. <laughs> Is the Bible like that? Is God's revelation like that? Well, no, it's not. It's not like that. And the reason is because Jesus, though he was revealed later, was actually God's first word and his final word and every word in between. We should not expect any other word than Jesus. Have a look. We read that he was God's first word in verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So you can think of um, John chapter 1, or you can think of Genesis chapter 1 here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made by him and for him and through him. Everything holds together. Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. And God said, and the word through the Lord, through the Son, the world is made. So God, uh, sorry, Jesus is, or the Son is God's first word. And he is also God's final word. In verse three, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In other words, he sat down, his work was completed, he took up his throne. God's final word had been spoken. And you might have also noticed the in-between, everything in-between, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So at the beginning and at the end and everything in between is this word, the word of the Son, the word who is the Son, the one we know as Jesus. And so... When we think about progressive revelation, the way to think about it is that the Old Testament is preparatory. It prepares us for what is to come in the new when Jesus himself, God's final word, comes. It's not just part one and then part two. Rather, it's promise and fulfillment. And if the promises have been fulfilled, then there is no third word. That it's all fulfilled in Jesus, which is, I think, one reason for all the quotes that you may have noticed in your growth group during the week in this passage. A, one, a great collection of quotes from the Old Testament, seven quotes in chapter 1 and another four quotes in chapter 2. Old Testament passages attributed to Jesus. Old Testament passages written before Jesus was born into the world, but not before the Son was the Word of God. And so even the Old Testament is preparing us and making promises for us to help us to understand, to expect, to anticipate, and then to understand who Jesus is when he comes. There won't be a Third Testament. There won't be a Newer Testament. Because the Son, as revealed in the New Testament, so perfectly fulfills all that the Old Testament foreshadowed. Now, back to that comparison. Uh, I pointed out that though uh, God spoke in the past at many times and in various ways, and yet there's no uh, comparable phrase after God speaking in Son, and I think that's simply because God in these final days, in these last days, God has spoken by the Son alone. A last word for last days. But the comparison between how God spoke in the past and how he has spoken in these last days isn't the only comparison in the passage, is it? You would have noticed this uh, if we didn't read it all this morning, but if you're looking at it in your growth group or if you looked at it before you came this morning, you would have noticed another comparison a second comparison, which is between Jesus and angels. And that comparison actually takes up far more space in these chapters, which might surprise us a little bit. Why? Why does the author spend so much time talking about angels or comparing Jesus to angels? Well, it seems likely that the people the letter was written to were paying far more attention to angels than was good for them. In fact, it seems likely that they were influenced by a teaching at the time, uh, had various various forms, various versions, um, but generally it was known as uh, Gnosticism or, or the Gnostic heresy. And in this teaching, the view was that spirit was good and flesh was bad, that spirit was pure And that somehow flesh was was less than pure. And so it's likely that they may even have been worshipping the angels. If you go to Colossians chapter 2.18 at some point, uh, you will uh, read there that this was something that went down. Colossians 2.18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So, it's possible that this is what was happening, or or among some, that the author was writing to, they may have been worshipping angels and thinking even that the angels, because of their spiritual nature, were even somehow better than Jesus, who had taken on flesh. And so, the author of Hebrews, through his collection of Old Testament quotes and his explanation of the Gospel, explains that, no... It's the other way around. The angels aren't greater or better than Jesus. Jesus is far superior to the angels. Uh, So he introduces the idea of angels in chapter 1, verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited, that is the name of son, is superior to theirs. Verse 6, it is said that Jesus is the object of the angels' worship and, of course, the lesser worships the greater. In chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we read that angels are merely impermanent creatures, whereas the Son is constant and eternal. And this Son, He rules from a throne, whereas the angels are servants. In fact... The angels, we read in chapter 1, verse 14, serve those who will inherit salvation. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And this is really where the author elevates the son and puts the angels in their place. He explains that far from uh, tarnishing far from the Son's humanity, tarnishing Him. It is the means, get this, it is the means of His perfection. That sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it? To say that, that the Son had to become human in order to be made perfect. And yet that's actually what we read. Verse, chapter 2, verse 10 in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered now don 't misunderstand it 's not that there was anything anything in Jesus that was not already pure and holy, but rather that his work was not complete until He had taken on flesh and blood. In fact, the author goes even further, it was not just his sharing of flesh and blood, but his offering up of that flesh and blood that achieved his perfection. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that God condescended in that way, that The perfect, the pure Son of God took on flesh and then gave that flesh up and so was made perfect. And get this, it was in the sharing and the giving of flesh and blood that the Son also elevates those who have flesh and blood. He elevates those he has saved to share in his glory With everything, even the angels, subject to them. That's you. If you are saved, if you are a child of God through faith in the Son, then you also have been raised above even the angels. So don't worship them. (laughs) Worship Jesus. In Jesus... God has spoken his better word, his best word, his final word. There is no more for God to say. So, does God still speak then? Yes. Yes, he does. God continues to speak through that same word. And God continues to speak through the written word, which is the account, the faithful record that we have of that one word. The Bible is a living word because it is breathed out by God. It has his life in it. And because the same spirit who inspired it in the first place has been given to every Christian to help us hear and understand and heed the word about Jesus that it contains. But does God speak in other ways? I hear you ask. In dreams, in visions, in prophecies, through angels, in a word from the Lord? Well, he may, but if he does, it won't be a new word he speaks, another word, a better word than Jesus. When God speaks, it is always in relation to his Son, it is the only thing he is interested in talking about. God speaks in Son, remember. He wants you to know his Son. Because the Son, as we read in chapter 1, verse 3, is the exact representation of his being. It's by knowing the Son that we know the Father. So if you want to know God know his Son. Because the Son, again in verse 3, has provided purification for sin. So if you want to find forgiveness for your sin, find it in Jesus, the Son. Because the Son, as it says in chapter 2 verse 9 and 15, has tasted death for everyone. So If you want to experience the grace of God that sets you free even from the fear of death, then experience that grace and freedom in the Son, in Jesus. And because the Son, as it says in chapter 2, verse 18, suffered when he was tempted in the form of human flesh, so if you want help when you are tempted, there is only one place to turn. And that's to Jesus, to the Son. But one thing I've noticed over the years is that when people want to hear from God, perhaps desire a new word from God or claim to have a new word from God, it's rarely about Jesus. Have you, have you noticed this? Instead of Jesus being its focus, we want to be the focus. God, give me a word about me. Rather than saying, what does God have to say about his son and his plans and his purpose? Rather, we ask, what does God have to say about me and my plans and my purpose? And folks, if that's you, let me urge you to stop the quest for a better word than Jesus. The better word has already been spoken. The better word has already come. All we need to know, in fact, all we need, is found in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you urge us, you exhort us in this passage to pay the most careful attention to what we have heard. This word about and in your Son, so that we do not drift away you know our propensity to drift father and that is why you warn us against it to drift away from jesus help us to find him as the secure anchor for our soul so that we won't drift give us a heart for him to know him a trust and a confidence in your word as it reveals him to us help us not to look elsewhere for something more which can only be something less. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.